This is Dave, and I'm here with Ethan, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast, Episode 92 Inch. On this week's episode, we air part one of our interview with legendary guitarist Richard Bennett, known for decades of touring and recording with Neil Diamond and Mark Knopfler, plus his early work with Weird Al Yankovic. It's Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al it's a podcast about Weird Al. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. This just in, Punxsutawney Phil says, six more weeks of winter. Well, I think we should have Groundhog Stomping Day and get rid of this cold weather because I am freezing. <laughs> <laughs> I am buried under like two feet of snow here. <laughs> well, Dave, get out of there. We got to <laughs> record this podcast. <laughs> it's okay. I have Frank outside. He's shoveling for me. He's doing a pretty decent job. Oh, good. Frank, when you're done, I could use a back rub. So <laughs> that intern, Frank. We had a fun episode last week with episode 92 inch, our guest Monique Donnelly, and she left a really great comment on one of our Facebook posts <laughs> after the episode aired, she said, I have spent an embarrassing amount of time listening to the last 10 seconds of every episode. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Monique. We think you'll enjoy the rest of the episodes too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hey, if she really wants you to just listen to the last 10 seconds, I'm not going to stop her, but yeah, I think she might find some other content she enjoys. <laughs> I know our intern Frank puts a lot of effort into those last 10 seconds of the episode. So I guess if you're only going to listen to 10 seconds of every episode, those are the 10 to listen to. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Monique. It's always great to hear from you. Absolutely. <laughs> And we do want to send a congratulations to our friend and supporter, Mike Minnick. He won the Patreon contest for the free t-shirt by being the first person to correctly guess that this week's guest would be Richard Bobcat Bennett. And Mike, finally, listening the second it drops has paid off for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be doing more Patreon contests in the future that do not necessarily involve listening the second the episode drops. <laughs> so if you want to get in on the fun, be sure to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 2000H and sign up to support the podcast and get the opportunity to win some great prizes. We also want to send a congratulations to our friend J.W. Halford and Joe Kappa for the official release of Ghost Dogs at the Sundance Film Festival. And today is the last day to catch it at Sundance, so be sure to do that if you have not already. And be sure to head out over to ghostdogs.net for more information about the film and to pick up some really cool merchandise. As we mentioned on last week's episode, February 1st, on Monday, it was the 40th anniversary of the release of the Another One Rides the Bust EP, a.k.a. the Placebo EP. We asked our listeners to post pictures of them with their EP over on our Facebook group at group.2000inch.com. And wow, did you all deliver great pictures on the group. 
Yes, if you haven't joined our Facebook group, head on over to group.2000inch.com and check out those pictures and all the other fun that we have in the Facebook group. Yeah, thanks everyone for posting your pictures. They were really cool. It was a lot of fun to look at them all. Now, we realize that not all of our listeners are total nut jobs like Dave and I, who have forked over the dough to collect a placebo EP, but I'm sure you folks want to hear all about the placebo EP that we always talk about and is beloved by so many Weird Al fans. In case you do not have the EP or the internet, there are four songs on this EP. The first song is Another One Rides the Bus. There's also a version of Happy Birthday, a version of Got a Boogie, and a version of Mr. Frump in the Iron Lung. Now, most of these songs ended up being re-recorded for Al's debut album, Weird Al Yankovic, with one exception. The version of Another One Rides the Bus that appears on the Placebo EP is the same version that originally aired on the Dr. Demento show on September 14th, 1980, and was later released as a single. This same version also later appears on the first album. This version is the only version that has ever been released. Now, while Another One Rides the Bus was recorded once and never again, that is not the case for Happy Birthday. The Placebo EP's version of Happy Birthday was again re-released on the permanent record Al in the Box box set and was also remixed into a new stereo version for the Hurricane Katrina charity album Laughter is a Powerful Weapon Volume 2 back in 2005. Of course, the song was also re-recorded for the Weird Al Yankovic album. A yet fourth version of Happy Birthday was recorded for the movie How to Be a Latin Lover. While only an excerpt is played in the film, you can hear the full version in the deleted scenes on the DVD. This version was also released on the Squeeze Box, the Complete Works of Weird Al Yankovic exclusive album, Medium Rarities, in 2017. The third track from the Placebo EP, Got a Boogie, was eventually re-released to members of the Demento Society, Dr. Demento's fan club, via his album Dr. Demento's Basement Tapes 13 in 2005. That one is a tough one to track down, but it's technically available. And there has never been a commercial re-release of the placebo version of Mr. Frump in the Iron Lung. So if you don't have the placebo EP and you don't want to go to jail like Tommy Chong, you will need to request it on the Dr. Demento Show streaming service available on drdemento.com. From all of us here at Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, congratulations and happy 40th anniversary to everyone involved in the release of the placebo EP. We especially want to give a shout out to some of our amazing past guests who have worked on the album, including Frank from the Bank Sanchez, who played bass on Happy Birthday. Beefalo Bill Burke, who not only designed the cover, but contributed miscellaneous insanities on Another One Rides the Bus. And John Schwartz, now he's not credited as Bermuda on the sleeve, he of course played Accordion Case on Another One Rides the Bus and drums and backing vocals on Happy Birthday. And then the great Dr. Demento, who's credited just as B-E-H. He, as we know, recorded Another One Rides the Bus as it aired live on his radio show. And he lent backing vocals to Happy Birthday. And this week's guest, Richard Bennett, credited as Bobcat Bennett on the EP. He played guitar on Happy Birthday. 
And we are so excited to make a very special announcement about another player on the Placebo EP coming up this spring on episode 100 inch on March 31st, 2021. We will be premiering our interview with Joel Miller, a.k.a. Jammin' Joel Miller, who plays bongos on Got a Boogie. Wait, the Joel Miller? Weird Al's best friend from college, Joel Miller? The best man at Weird Al's wedding, Joel Miller? Interviewed on Weird Al's Behind the Music special, Joel Miller? Featured in Sam Anderson's incredible New York Times Magazine article about Weird Al, Joel Miller? Yep, episode 100 inch, Joel Miller. Wow, what a score. Intern Frank, get in here, buddy. That is such a great score for the podcast. Frank, you've come through for us once again. Each week, you continue to get all these amazing guests for us. I just got to know, Frank, how did you ever track down the Joel Miller? Oh, Frank, this seems to happen every time you're about to talk lately. Well, sorry, Frank. We don't pay you enough to put up with this each week. But we don't pay Frank. Exactly. Anyway, you know what that sound means. We've got a message on the 347 Spatula Hotline. The 347 Spatula Hotline, the official hotline of Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, is sponsored by Angel Valenzuela and David Cash, two amazing Weird Al fans and podcast supporters. Let's listen to the message now. Hi, Dave and Ethan. This is Eric Rhodes calling from hundreds of miles away from Park City, Utah, where I was able to stream the premiere of Edgar Wright's documentary, The Sparks Brothers, where Al was interviewed uh, along with other Sparks fans like Mike Myers, Patton Oswalt, Fred Armisen, Jason Schwartzman, and Scott Ackerman. And Al does make the final cut. He pops up three or four times throughout the movie, uh, offering commentary and at one point playing accordion, which you see in the trailer. Uh, unfortunately, the song that Al performed with them live on stage was not used, although in the Q&A, the band expressed interest in releasing that show as its own concert film in some way, hopefully maybe on the Blu-ray. And, of course, being an Edgar Wright film, it's going to have plenty of supplemental material on the Blu-ray in the future, so I'm very uh, excited to see what ends up there. And, unfortunately, Al's Sparks pastiche, Virus alert does not come up at all in the movie, but again, hopefully on the Blu-ray somewhere. Wow, Eric, thank you for all of that amazing information. I cannot wait to see this documentary. Hopefully more Weird Al content shows up on the Blu-ray. All right, let's move on to this week in Weird Al-related news. The two-time Grammy Award-nominated Jim Kimo West has announced that he has a fun, upbeat, slack-key cover of Paul Simon's classic tune, Feelin' Groovy, coming out on Friday, February 12th. Last week, our listener and supporter Jackson Scoggins called in eight years from the future and referred to Jim as two-time Grammy Award-nominated. We wanted to clarify that Jackson was very careful to use the present-day title for Jim as not to spoil the results of the upcoming Grammys, Oscars, Tonys, and Emmys for the next eight years. Thanks a lot, Jackson. We got some really exciting news regarding 
episode nine inch guest susan mcnab susan recently released her memoir the opposite of famous a hollywood memoir it's available on kindle and paperback and as a treat we have with us right here in the studio susan mcnab herself welcome susan how are you doing hi thanks it's great to be here yeah thanks for joining us you are on way 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 back a nine inch. I can't believe that you're still in touch. You finally wrote this book. It's finally out. What can you tell us about this book? <laughs> well, it's my my story of my life when I lived in Hollywood. I lived there for 27 years, and I worked as a model and an actress in commercials. I worked for Elvira for 17 years. I did tons of other crappy jobs. <laughs> I was an ex. <laughs> I was an extra in film and television, and I worked as a makeup artist and an assistant director. And, you know, I was a single girl, and I just pretty much did any job anybody would offer me. So consequently, I have lots of great behind-the-scenes stories and lots of funny stories. Oh, I also dated Jerry Seinfeld for eight years, and so <laughs> right. I was in that... I was, yeah, so that was kind of funny. So. <laughs> so yeah, I wrote a book. It's like a collection of funny essays about um, the different aspects of my life there. Wow. Well, so for people who are having trouble remembering all the way back to Nine Inch, uh, Susan, the reason we had you on was not because, you know, you, you you worked with Elvira, you dated Jerry Seinfeld, you were in all these TV shows and music videos. We had you on because you play a Robert Palmer girl, you know, a girl with, you know, legs and stockings and a mustache in the UHF music video. That's right. So that was probably only the tiniest little blip on your career, which sounds like you've just had an incredible career. Well, thank you. It was not a tiny blip. I assure you, it was a very fabulous, fun, wonderful blip. So don't, <laughs> don't downplay my blips, okay? Because <laughs> they, were all, <laughs> they were all very important to me. And I loved that job. I have to tell you, it was, well, I did tell you on on the episode nine inch but it was a fun fun day and, and just a great memory now of course and and i love looking at the video because i'm so young and yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was it was so much fun getting to relive it and i i definitely urge people to go check out nine inch to hear all about that uh but one thing that i, I don't think we really covered too much and maybe you cover this in your new memoir but the character Elaine on Seinfeld was actually partially based on you? Yes, it was initially. Um, of course, she became her own self and, you know, went off in a thousand other directions and was nothing like me. But in the very beginning, um, when they decided to write the Elaine character, her name was actually Susan in the beginning. Oh, wow. And when she was, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, Jerry, well, at least that's what Jerry told me. But um, he said he would get frustrated because he would come up with lines and he'd say, no, Susan wouldn't really say that. And they're like, you know, Jerry, it's not really Susan. And so they changed the name to Elaine. And of course she took off and create, you know, being, it was created into this beautiful, wonderful, funny, charming character. And I'm sure it was eventually based on lots of other people that had nothing to do with me. But in the very beginning, the tiny little <laughs> seed that was first planted <laughs> was, was based on me. Yes. That's so I'm so told. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Were you ever watching Seinfeld and like, hey, I said that or, or anything like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> yes. As you know, writers write their, what they know. Right. And I was in his life for a long time. So, yeah, I recognize a lot of little elements of a lot of episodes, <laughs> which is fine. It was his life, too, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. And it was fabulous, of course. The show is wonderful. So you dated Jerry Seinfeld for eight years, and you talk about that a lot in the book, I'm sure. But one thing that really caught my attention is a little teaser. You said that you were a butt double. Now, I mean, <laughs> what the heck is a butt double? And how did that happen? That's right. <laughs> I can say, not very many people can, but I can say that I was Gina Davis's butt double in a movie called Speechless. Hey, it was a glamorous job, okay? <laughs> yes, I often hand doubled and foot doubled and leg doubled, and I, I was a photo double for a lot of different actresses. It's one of those weird little jobs that a lot of girls in Hollywood do for money, and they're all union jobs, so everybody can stop giggling because they're very <laughs> but yes, but yes, I, I portrayed her booty in the book. And the, the chapter is called A Room with a View of My Booty. So there you go. Can you give us a little more insight on what exactly it, it takes to be a booty double? Is it just like they didn't think her, her booty looks bootylicious enough? Or how does that work? It takes, <laughs> it takes tremendous talent, I have to tell you. <laughs> no, it was just that I happened to be there. I was her hand double on three different films. And it doesn't mean that her hands aren't perfect because they were gorgeous, but it just is easier and quicker to use doubles for all the little insert shots, you know? Okay. Like if she's if she's turning the page of a book, you don't need to bring her in to turn the page for the close-up. So they use a hand double. And because I was hand doubling her, they asked me if I would, you know, photo double her, which means any body part and I said sure and then I got onto the set and it was my my butt that they needed of course I was clothed I had on clothing <laughs> she was wearing a mini skirt so you know she was dressed but it was a makeout scene in the car with her and um, Michael Keaton so I had to like climb on top of Michael Keaton's photo double and <laughs> and <laughs> move my butt around in a professional manner it was really it was it was really quite a wow. quite a job, and of course, makes a great story now. So. Yes. <laughs> wow. So when you watch the film, yeah. you can be like, "There's my butt." Yes. And in fact, <laughs> I have never seen that film. That's one thing that's so funny about. I mentioned that in this in this book several times. When you do this, you know, four or five days a week. After a while, you're just like, "Yeah, whatever." And a lot of the things I've I've never even watched, and I've never watched that scene, so maybe I should look for it on Netflix or something before I start talking about it. It might be more embarrassing. It might be more embarrassing than I thought. I want to print out a screenshot and have you sign uh, your butt. <laughs> well, it would be my pleasure. <laughs> well, we are so thrilled to get to have you back on the show. The Opposite of Famous, a Hollywood memoir, just came out. You can get it on paperback. You can get it on Kindle over at Amazon.com. And, you know, is this the one and done memoir or is there more stories that you have uh, held back for another sequel? You know, I think I should keep going because, as you pointed out, I haven't talked about Weird Al in this book. And so, as you know, I have some stories there. So I think there might be another one in me. We'll see. Wow. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I could come back. Yes. <laughs> We'd love to have you anytime. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. Thank you. Susan wanted to make sure that we let you know that her dog and past podcast guest, Joey, was doing great as well. It's always great to hear updates from our past podcast guests, regardless of how many legs they have. <laughs> 
Susan, I'm so excited to read Opposite of Famous, and I hope all of our listeners run right out to Amazon and pick up their copies today. Last weekend was the premiere of Festpocalypse, the digital benefit for San Francisco Sketchfest. As Weird Al put on his Twitter, he was one of 20,000 comedians to be part of the show. Ethan, as the resident comedian of Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al podcast, what can you tell us about the show? Now, Festpocalypse was awesome. I had so much fun. It was like three hours long. There were so many incredible comedians, including some of my personal favorites like Bob and David from Mr. Show. But nothing could beat all of the amazing Al appearances. So pretty much starting off the show, Al shows up in a sketch by the state. Now, the state, of course, is the sketch comedy troupe from MTV back in the 90s. Now, maybe some people didn't understand the sketch because there was a lot of references back to their old TV show. But as someone who does love the state, it was pretty stinking majestic. It was really funny. <laughs> uh, Al shows up. There's other surprise guests. And of course, you know, his good buddy Thomas Lennon is also a member of the state. So he's in there as well. Now, both of our former guests who were appearing on Festpocalypse were pitted against other comedians in their segment. I'm happy to report that episode 21-inch guest Dave Hill won his debate of cats versus dogs against Margaret Cho. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also happy to report that episode 15-inch and episode 40-inch guest Jonah Ray won on the mini Doug Benson, Doug Loves Movies segment. Now, I have to say, the absolute best part of Festpocalypse was the last bit. And not just because I'm a big Weird Al fan, it was truly the funniest bit of the entire event. <laughs> so it featured Triumph the Insult Comic Dog interviewing Weird Al, and it was so funny. So Triumph kept singing the songs that he said were Weird Al songs. And of course they weren't, but they were hilarious. And Weird Al even joined him in singing one of these imaginary Weird Al parodies. You have to check it out if you haven't seen it. Now, another really cool thing was they had this digital after party where it was essentially like a video game and you can walk around and video chat with people. And they also had all these little Easter eggs all over the place. And so that was really cool to check out. But one of the Easter eggs was an unaired clip of Al and Triumph. So, so much great Al content. It was a blast. Wow, that sounds great. Anyone who missed out on the fun can still buy a ticket and catch the Festpocalypse replay over at ssketchfest.com. And it's like three hours long, so if you're hungry, feel free to head on over to Vegan Mexican Restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York and pick up a snack. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Vegan Mexican Restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double-wrapped-in-a-quesadilla Burrito Burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito, your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at burritosquared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a Burrito Burrito Burrito, but every Burrito 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 can be Burrito Burrito'd. Now that we've covered the news, I think it's time we check another interview off our Placebo EP checklist. Our next guest has performed with Neil Diamond for 17 years and Mark Knopfler since 1994. The list of people that he has recorded with and worked with just scrolls on for pages. Everyone from Billy Joel, Barbara Streisand, Emmylou Harris, and of course, Weird Al Yankovic. And he is also the brother of our favorite drummer, 
is our great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Richard Bennett. How's it going, Richard? Everything's going fine. We're <laughs> staying safe in, you know, reasonable lockdown mode and have been since March. And uh, that suits us just fine, to be honest with you. It gives us license to be uh, the introverts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we we don't look weird. We're just. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I and the and the thing is, I you know, I do miss my friends, but uh, I just I don't know how much of the old normal I'm I'm going back to anyway when this is all mm. said and done and in our rearview mirror. Uh, you know, I just don't give a damn about any of that anymore. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Become a hermit crab, I suppose. <laughs> I always say the, the, the some of the biggest changes is that not much changed out of my introvert life. You know, <laughs> staying home. All right, yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's a world nightmare. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But you know, our, our expenses have dropped by like half to two thirds. Our visa bill, I look forward to it coming in now. <laughs> to see how much money we've saved. Um, yeah, it's it's going to change a lot of things. And uh, so many people have died and so many people have suffered. And um, But I, I think there will be a new, uh, a, a slightly new order come out of this, not all in a negative way at the end of it. Um, but I'm certainly moving for a, a post-vaccine world. Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I think the where we need to start is absolutely with how you are the brother of John Bermuda Schwartz. How long has that been? <laughs> He's almost, almost uh, well, let's see. How old is he? He's 64. I guess almost 64 years now. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to ask our parents about that. But, um, yeah, he's my, he's my kid brother and a great musician. And, you know, I'm proud of him. Always have been. And growing up, it was just the two of you with your parents and you come from a very musical family. What can you tell us about, you know, music growing up? Uh, well, both of my parents were, both of our parents uh, were involved. Uh, m my mother, as a teenager and a young adult, um, sang light opera um, wow. on the radio and in Chicago and that kind of thing. And I think she had probably wanted a career of that, but that didn't work out that way. Uh, my father... Uh, our father, um, <laughs> well, played uh, accordion. Again, uh, oh. not. He was he was pretty good at it, and he was also uh, in advertising and in radio in the forties, and then later in the fifties in television. So, you know, there was some sort of a a musical and an entertainment background there. And uh, there was always music around the house, as I recall, either just the radio being on or, um, you know, my folks playing playing records. Yeah. All kinds of all kinds of different music, and and 
of course, having having about five years uh, jump start on John, uh, I I grew up listening to or remember first hearing kind of pre rock and roll um, pop music, Frankie Lane and Joe Stafford and Joni James and Rosemary Clooney and people like that, hmm. Perry Como and stuff like that. Um, so that's what my folks listened to and. So yeah, we you know music was always around. My folks used to listen to a lot of Cuban music and Latin music. Hmm. Uh, my my uncle uh, had moved at some point in the mid fifties, I think, to Cuba, kind of pre Castro Cuba, and uh, he was sort of a wonderful ne'er do well who <laughs> tended the bar and womanized and gave tours to tourists um, in Cuba. Uh, and uh, it all, I think, went to fund his golf playing habit. And, uh, you know, once or twice a year, he'd come back to Chicago, where we were still living, uh, to visit, uh, well, to really to visit our folks, uh, because I think the rest of the family was gone at that point. His his. Uh, my other uncle had or had died, and uh, my grandparents on my dad's side had died. So I remember him coming to Chicago to visit us, looking very tan and uh, smelling of whatever bay rum he had <laughs> on him, and um, an arm an armload of the latest uh, Cuban records. 78s and and teaching my parents the latest Cuban dances. Uh, that would have been just around the time John was born, and just slightly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, when Castro came in, he he fled back to uh, to Phoenix, where we were living then in 1960 or 61, I think that was. Hmm. So yeah, all kinds all kinds of music was around the house. Obviously, yeah, music all around the house. What was your first instrument? What did you kind of pick up, you know, when you first started in in music? Well, my first instrument was drums. Wow. And uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, and my dad, being in advertising, had done some work for the William Ludwig Company, which was based in Chicago. Then mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's it still may be. I don't know, but it was then and. Uh, had always been up to that point. And I, I think he was always sort of a frustrated drummer himself. And in lieu of um, payment for his work, he worked out a deal with them that, uh, to get a little small drum kit. And I remember going with him to the Ludwig factory there to pick it up and and meeting the old man, you know, meeting William Ludwig. Mm-hmm. Not junior, but the old, the old man. Wow. And uh, so that was it. It was deemed that I was going to play drums. And I took lessons at the William Knapp um, Percussion School of Percussion, I think it was called, in Chicago, which was a very famous place and turned out a lot of professional drummers, not the least of which was Hal Blaine and Buddy Harmon, but also it had, you know it had turned out drummers for years and percussionists, and it was just something I did, you know. I didn't, 
I didn't, I don't think I had a real passion for the drums, but, you know, what six-year-old or seven-year-old kid didn't like beating on drums, so that's <laughs> what I did. <laughs> but around that time, you know, rock and roll was starting to come in, and I was always really interested in country music and hillbilly music and stuff, and, you know, you'd see, you'd see guys like Ernest Tubb and, I don't know, Hank Snow or Elvis on TV, you know, and, and they always had a guitar slung around their neck. So that's really what I, that really caught my attention more than the drums. And I, uh, you know, persevered with drums for about four years, but that wasn't my real passion. My passion was guitar. And, uh, you know, I guess when I was 11 or 12, um, I got a guitar. And at that point, the drums went by the wayside. And John got the drums, and it turned out that that was his passion. Yeah. So things work out the way they, they're supposed to, you know. Oh, so his first drum set was your first drum set as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, they just moved over from my bedroom into his. <laughs> I'm sure your parents were thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I started trying to get from a C chord to an F chord without inflicting collateral damage on the guitar, you know. <laughs> but that's that's how that all ended up. Now, was there ever any jealousy between John trying to, you know, say, well, I got already got Richard's drum set. I wonder if I can get his guitar next. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think he found his, his uh, you know, his, his musical uh, instrument pretty quickly. And... Uh, to his credit, he stayed with that. Uh, he stayed with that and has done incredibly well, you know, with it all. And I guess I found my way as well, you know. <laughs> and when you did pass on the drums, did you spend any time showing John around? No, I don't recall that. But he might he might have some insider memory of that. I don't. Hmm. Uh, you know, at that point in our siblinghood, we were kind of at war with each other a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't think I showed him anything. But, um, <laughs> oh, he did, you know, he did great with that. And like I said, I'm, I've always been really proud of him. Now, outside of, you know, the couple demos and, and studio recordings you did with Weird Al and, and John, were you ever in any bands with John as a kid or, or since then? Yeah, not really. No. Um, you know, there was just enough of that age gap, that five-year gap, that by the time he really started, you know, being interested in playing in bands and stuff, I was kind of off already doing session work and mm. um, playing with Neil Diamond and all of that. And uh, so I was busy, you know, with my career at that point. Now, you know, we did we we did do some recording together, one of which is the thing that led to ultimately meeting Al. Um, but we did we did a couple of things together, just home recordings, but they were good recordings mm-hmm. of uh, of things that, that yeah. uh, John sent into uh, the Dr. Demento show that, that uh, Barry, Dr. Demento, played, uh, and played fairly regularly for a while. And uh, so we did things like that, and we did some outside shows together. The... You know, a few things we did, but I, I was sort of focused at that time on, uh, you know, my studio work had begun to take off. At, at 
well as the Neil Diamond thing sort of coinciding with it. And so I was kind of busy, you know. So after recording, you know, a handful of things with John and, you know, them getting submitted and played on Dr. Demento, at what point did you learn about, you know, this new bandmate of his, Alfred Yankovic? Well, I I think I first got on to Al through the Dr. Demento show. I mean, I was just a fan of the show, and I, I, I listened mm-hmm. nearly every Sunday as, as often as I could. Um, and it seems that I heard uh, my Sharona first on on uh, the Demento show, whenever that was seventy eight or something, you know. And and I also remember I used to, you know I uh, I used to haunt the the big tower record shop uh, on Sunset. Uh, you know I'd go in there two or three times, not a week, but uh, um, certainly a month. Yeah. And, you know, drop uh, obscene amounts of money <laughs> on record, records there. <laughs> and I remember, um, you know, going up to the counter one night to check out with an armload of records. And there was a box of Al's My Sharona 45s on Capitol. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of put that on the stack, too. So that was, uh, you know, that was my introduction to Al. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was a fan, you know, from the start. And, uh, yeah, that's how that happened. And so were you listening to that Dr. Demento show in 1980 when John actually joins Al and bangs on the accordion case? Yeah, well, we were there. I was there. Oh, you were? With him. Yeah. Uh, you know, because being a big fan of, of uh, Barry's, um, I... I had a close friend who we'd done a lot of sessions together at that point, and he'd also joined Neil Diamond's band, a guy named Tom Hensley. And Tom knew Barry, and you know, I, I, I got together with Tom and said, "Man, let's let's see if we can get Demento together and round him up and go have dinner together, just the three of us," hmm. which we did. And uh, you know, Tom, Barry, and myself. And then we ended up back at my house listening to 78s that night. So I kind of had a little bit of a, you know, uh, introduction to, to Dr. Demento there. Right. And I asked him if um, it would be all right if, if uh, uh, my brother and I, John and I, came up and watched him do his show one night, which he was perfectly fine with. And and then I went on to explain that John uh, had done a couple of uh, recordings that he'd been playing for a while. The Ballad of Woodsy Owl we did. And, um, I think we did a version of Pico and Sepulveda. And uh, so he was all for that. And uh, so anyway, we just, we arrived at uh, the night that we could all do it. And, and uh, you know, at that point, Barry was Barry used to do his show live. I think it was on KMET there in Hollywood at the time. And uh, it went from 6 to 10, four hours of live radio. And uh, so that was it. John and I turned up there at the station and were welcomed in. And uh, Barry always used to have, uh, you know, a handful of uh, college I don't want to 
call them kids, but they were college kids, you know, yeah. come in and they were all into music and stuff. And it created a good vibe, you know, it created a, a, a party atmosphere there. And they'd help out, you know, answering requests and taking phone calls and making noise, you know, and uh, <laughs> it was all all a lot of fun. <laughs> and, uh, I think heading into the fourth hour, Al asked if anybody, he had a new song he wanted to debut, uh, a parody of uh, Another One Rides the Bus, uh, and asked if everybody to come in the studio there with him, into a little side studio. And, you know, just make noise and create a party atmosphere and bang on stuff. Of course, John said, well, I play drums. And, and uh, uh, you know, so I said, oh, great. Yeah, you hear it pound on my accordion case. <laughs> uh, that was that. And uh, they recorded it. Of course, it went out live, but they also recorded it. And that ended up being the single yeah. that was released on, T- on TK yeah. Records. Um so yeah, we you know John and I were both there that night that that happened, and uh, you know we both met Al that night. Of course, I knew we I think we both knew who he was because um, he used to apart from the my Sharona thing, he was sort of a semi regular there on the Demento show, right? You know, answering phones and that kind of thing. How crazy is it that because of that one day, we're all sitting here today talking to each other? <laughs> It's I know. Crazy to think about, right? <laughs> it's pretty interesting how stuff happens, and and of course, um, you know that John has been John and Al have been together since that night. Yeah, uh, John's yeah. John's been involved yeah. in everything. I I remember, um, I don't know when Al finally put a band together, and uh, John, you know, John told me that. I didn't, well, maybe I did say it out loud, but if I didn't, I certainly thought, well, that's great. If you can get a couple of years out of that, <laughs> boy, you've done well. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> that's not to put Al down in any way whatsoever. I just didn't see it as as, as involved or as long-lasting as it's turned out to be. Right. But I, I can't any other musician that I know just had a gig that long. Right. And that consistently. Right. Hell yeah. Same band. And yeah, it's incredible. It's really incredible. It's really incredible. My hat's, my hat's off to, to John, but my hat's off to Al, too, for being very loyal, you know, and, and knowing that, you know, when something's good and in place, there's no reason to stir it up. Right. You, know, you just keep going. <laughs> Now, so you're at the recording of Another One Rides the Bus. Were you making any noise in the background? You know, is there any... No, I think I, I think I was the only fool who declined okay. to be part of it. <laughs> but I remember all of them going off to a little uh, anti-studio, just a little side studio from the the one that uh, uh, it was in, and them all huddling off in there. And... Uh, doing it and me and Barry sitting out in the main control room yeah. watching it go on. <laughs> yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> anyway, they all they all did fine without me. <laughs> I thought it was what I really loved about it was that um you know, back in, in in the in the forties and fifties, it wasn't uncommon to record a record 
in a, in a, in a radio studio as opposed to a standalone recording studio. Hmm. Uh, a lot of records were made up in recording studios. And um, so there you go, whatever that was, 1980, it happened again, you know? The success of Another One Rides the Bus, of course, then Al uh, decided to put out his own EP of that. And there were a couple songs he put out on that EP, one of them, Happy Birthday, which I understand you were also involved in that one as well. Yeah, I was involved in that and um, a few other things. I'll Be Mellow When I'm Dead, I played on. Yeah. That's part of that EP. And and um, we recorded that. We ended up recording that up in my garage. Oh. Um, I was living up in uh, Lake Hollywood, up above Burbank at the time. And uh, the house we were living in, the house we bought, um, the people who had it before had converted a, a street-level two-car garage they kind of blocked it off and made it into a uh, into a room, um, and uh, so that ended up being my music room in that garage. And uh, anyway, that's where we recorded it. And Al had a four track porta studio, they called that. Yes, four track four track uh, cassette recorder, and uh, mm. that was it. You know, it was really archaic. And on cassette at that, whatever speed that went at, I think three and three quarters or something, it was just nothing. And uh, if you were clever, you could sort of um, bounce from one track to another. So you could you could record three tracks and keep one track open and bounce two or three of those tracks onto the one track and just keep ping-ponging. Like oh, that. okay. Which is what, yeah, which is what we did, and uh, which was not an uncommon thing prior to like sixteen track or even eight track. You know, with four tracks and a lot of Beatles records and records of that era were done that way. Um, you know, you record three tracks and bounce them, and then record, you know, two more and bounce it, and you know, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, and of course, each time you did the bounce, it would degrade uh, the track before it just ever so slightly. But it also gave it a really kind of wonderful atmosphere as well. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that's that's what was going on with that um, EP that ended up on, on placebo. And I have to tell you, I went, you know, Discogs. Dot com. Yeah. Yeah, it's a record collecting clearinghouse kind of thing. Right. Uh, I went there today and for the first time and looked that EP up. And my God, it's, you know, I think there's three copies available beginning at $399. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christmas, you know? It's an expensive one. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. The... So we did that up in my, in, in my garage. And I played on yeah. I played on those two things, and then uh, you know John and uh, Al and the rest of them kind of did whatever else was was on on it. There were a couple of other things, um, uh, something that uh, Mister Mister Trump and the Iron Lung is on there. 
Yeah. I think it's called that. Yeah. 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 Mr. Trump and the Iron Lung. <laughs> I remember if I played on that, but I think that was done up in the up in the garage as well. Oh, cool. And okay. then we we re-recorded some of that stuff at Westwood One shortly after. Westwood One was uh, a radio syndication house that had a, a a studio and its offices in Culver City, I believe it was, and. Uh, I think we re-recorded I'll Be Mellow and I'm Dead There. And I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. If that if that was the one that ended up on the placebo version or not. John would know that. And we also recorded Stop Dragging My Car Around and the checks in the mail. That was all done at Westwood One. And then, you know, not too long after that, Al got a record deal. Right. Uh, in the meantime, I think the EP had come out, and then Al got a, a, a Scotty brother. I think it was at Scotty Brothers or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and um, oh, what's his name from the McCoys? I can't think of his name. Yeah, Rick Derringer. Yeah. Yeah, Rick produced that album, and I played. Then we re-recorded again the checks <laughs> in the mail, and I'll be right. I'll be mellow when I'm <laughs> mellow when I'm dead in a proper studio that Rick looked after, you know, and, uh, then that was it. Uh, My services were no longer needed (laughs) between, (laughs) between, you know, Rick being a great guitar player and, uh, uh, Jim West being a great guitar player. Uh, you know, Al had his, had his guitar players in place. Right. Uh, Right. Now, were you with Neil Diamond at that time? Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah. So you had something to fall back on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and my studio work, you know, was had really taken off by then. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I was I was busy, you know. Yeah. You know, back when you were recording a few of those things for Al's EP and, and the first album, how were you first approached to record on those? Was that through John or was that through Al? I, I forgot exactly. I, I think it was more a case of me having a space a little right, place to right. do it in. And, and I, I think it must have been John who organized it. Uh, but it was all very casual. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was, I, it, it must have been John who organized it because, you know, after initially meeting Al there at uh, Dr. Demento's program, I, I think the next time we got together w- would have been up in my garage. So, John would have put that together. Mm, okay. But, you know, whenever you you all have a word with him next, he, he's got like a, a mind like a steel trap for all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's really into documentation and the history of it all. And and I am to some degree, but, uh, you know, God, that was a long time ago, you know? Yeah. <laughs> was John always like that as a kid, too? Was his room always nice and neat and everything and organized? And he had his homework in on time and things like that as well? Well, I don't know. He, he was, <laughs> yeah, he was always, he always was very conscientious about things. I can't vouch for his homework and stuff. But um, <laughs> I mean, when it came to musical things and all of that, and things like his record collection and stuff. I always remember him being very organized and conscientious. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he is he's the go-to guy for anything Al. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, if he doesn't remember it, it didn't happen. <laughs> as far as I'm I, concerned. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I mentioned, I mean, he sent me a little refresher of uh, th- these things that I played on for Al and when it was and where it was. Um, and the dates and, <laughs> and all of that. Uh, at best, I would have had a I was, well, I was keeping a date book at that point, so I would have, I, w- I would have had him in my date book. But uh, you know, uh, man, he's just got it all documented. Yeah, he's terrific. And you know, the Westwood One stuff. I I don't know how much stuff you've covered with him, but that little interim interim recordings we did there at Westwood One. Um, Al was working at Westwood One at the time, and. Um, I think when Al, either, you know, when Al decided to leave, um, John ended up with Al's job there. Hmm. And that was kind of a day job for both of them. Uh, and John, I don't know what Al was doing there specifically, but John ended up being the facilities manager at Westwood One uh, for quite a long time, well into the time that Al was touring. and. Uh, Westwood One was really good about letting him go do that, and Al had a had a sub that would go take on his work there at Westwood One when he was away. So it worked out to be a good deal. He could he could keep his day job kind of thing and still go out on tour and do whatever recording with with Al and other people as well. So it, it worked out to be really good. And then at some point. You know, he was ready to leave right. Westwood. Right, right. Wow. I'm curious on the Placebo EP, of course, the one that's $400 on Discogs. Uh, you are credited as Bobcat Bennett. What's the origin of that name, Bobcat? Yep. <laughs> All right. We'll pick up the interview here next week on episode 93 Inch, where we dive into more of Richard's incredible music career. Thank you once again, Richard. I am so looking forward to the conclusion of this interview next week. And a big thank you to Bermuda for hooking us up with Bobcat. I don't know how Bermuda was able to get Bobcat's contact information, but we're so glad that he did. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Discover Darwin, promoting tourism in Darwin, Minnesota. Not only is historic Darwin, Minnesota uh, beautiful, it's also shabby. Now, now, Ethan, that's not nice. They are our sponsor. Shabby, as in the Shabby Shed, the premier home goods store in Darwin, Minnesota. Wait, like, didn't that close three years ago? Yes, but when it was open, it was the premier home goods store in Darwin, Minnesota. Wow, Darwin had everything. And to prove how premier they were, they even got a five-star review on Google once. That's five out of five stars. That's right. And back in the day, they were the stop to get your home goods like... Handmade signs. Home goods. Refinished furniture. Home goods. Home goods. Home goods. And now, 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 it's just a vacant lot. So visit Darwin, Minnesota on your next expedition. Discover Darwin. More than just a twine ball. And after you visit Darwin, Minnesota, be sure to visit discoverdarwin.biz. Hey Dave, do you like free stuff? 
Oh boy, do I love free stuff. Well, you are in luck because each and every week we're able to bring you this podcast absolutely free thanks to sponsors like Burrito Burrito, Angel Valence Whale, and his son David Cash, Discover Darwin, Jackson Scoggins, and our amazing close personal friend Patreon supporters Kenneth, Jared, Zeb, Blair, Allison, and Javier, as well as Richard and so many more. Revenue from our incredible supporters on Patreon.com slash 2000inch allows us to continue doing what we love, which is making fantastically fun and family-friendly Weird Al podcasts for you each and every week. We'd absolutely appreciate your consideration in joining our pretty stinking majestic Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. Looking for another way to support the podcast? Head over to shop.2000inch.com for official Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast t-shirts, tote bags, tank tops, face masks, mugs, pillows, and so much more. Find us online at weirdoutpodcast.com or 2000inch.com where you can find information about our guests and listen to past episodes like episode 32-inch with Frank from the Bank Sanchez. Episode 52-inch and episode 82-inch with Dr. Demento. Episode 72-inch with Beefalo Bill Burke. Episode 10-inch, episode 16-inch, episode 27-inch, episode 67-inch, episode 68-inch, episode 82-inch, and episode 83-inch with John Bermuda Schwartz. This episode, episode 92-inch with Richard Bennett. And for all you time travelers, future episodes 93-inch, 100-inch, and of course, episode 2000-inch. Please join our Facebook group by heading to group.2000inch.com for episode discussions and other exclusive content. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 2000inch and at youtube.2000inch.com. Be sure to share our posts and tell your friends to gill and chill. We love it when you leave us voicemail via our 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline 347 spatula. You might even hear your message on the air. You can catch our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice. Whichever you choose, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you do not miss any episodes, especially the new episodes that drop every Wednesday. We will soon begin airing our series of bonus episodes where we sit down with John Bermuda Schwartz and go page by page, picture by picture, inch by inch through his book, Black and White and Weird All Over. Time is running out for you to grab a book if you want to be able to follow along with those episodes. Plus, it's a great gift to give someone for Black History Month. Thank you once again to Richard Bobcat Bennett, John Bermuda Schwartz, Susan McNabb, Eric Rhodes, Jim Kimo West for our incredible theme song, and thanks to all of our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and everyone else who made this podcast and episode possible. Make sure you tune in next week, episode 93-inch, for the exciting conclusion of our interview with Richard Bobcat Bennett. That was Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 92-inch. Proudly spotlighting Jerry Seinfeld's ex-girlfriend's current dog. Now, were you with Neil Diamond at that time? Yeah, I was. So you had something to fall back on there.